This is the East Traumacast. With your moderators, Ferrance Mapman, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next edition of the TraumaCast. My name is Carrie Valdez. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined uh, with some military members of East, and I thought in celebration of Independence Day this week, we could have a TraumaCast and just uh, have a conversation about what it's like to be a military surgeon, uh, the experience, um, some of the reasons for doing it, and um, how East has been supportive. I'm going to ask my guests to each introduce themselves and just give us a, a brief uh, history of kind of where you're stationed and, and how you've been involved with East. Why don't we start with uh, Pam Choi in Kansas? Yeah, um, my name is um, Pam Choi. I'm a lieutenant commander uh, in, the, um, in the Navy. Um, I'm presently a uh, pediatric surgery fellow at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Um, I've been uh, a great uh, beneficiary of everything that East has to offer, um, particularly the uh, Call to Arms uh, scholarship program, which is open to military members and allowed me to uh, go to East on a, um, on a uh, scholarship, uh, which was a tremendous experience. Great. And then next, if you would mind, Matt, if you could introduce yourself. Matt's usually one of my co-moderators, and he'll help me with that today, but also he's going to be one of our guests. He is calling in from California. Sure. Hey, this is Matt Martin. I am a uh, recently retired colonel in the U.S. Army uh, trauma surgeon. I was stationed at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington for most of my military time, other than occasional vacations to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I've uh, been in East since I was a decent trauma fellow. And, and East has just been fantastic as far as welcoming military members, getting them involved in, in committees and leadership roles, and, and just 100% supporting the military. And then our final guest is Ben Miller calling in all the way from Guam. Ben, how you doing? Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm tired. I'm doing okay. Uh, so I, I, my name is Ben Miller. I'm a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy as well. Um, I finished residency, general surgery residency in 2016, and I was first stationed in Norfolk on a fleet surgical team and spent most of those two years, 14 months of those 24 months um, on, a, on a ship. Most of the time was spent on the USS Bataan. Uh, and then uh, uh, 2017, I, I transferred to uh, U.S. Naval Hospital Guam, where I'll be for two years until next year. Wonderful. I think this is going to set a TraumaCast record that we are spanning 18 time zones to get the three of you together. So I appreciate uh, all of you, whatever time of day it is, and actually whatever day it is for you, uh, getting it together. Um, <laughs> although I, I kind of wonder, like, is 18 time zones, if we just went the other direction, feels like it should just be six time zones. Yeah, right. It is. Yeah, sort of. Um, but it's the, it's, the, it's the next, exactly, but it's the next day. So close. So, so like in Hawaii, if we, if we went backwards to Hawaii, it's only a few hours. Like when you, when you leave here in a, in a plane and in the morning and then and it's eight hours to Honolulu, but when you land in Honolulu, you get to see the sun set on the same day that you left again, the day, sorry, the day before you left. So when you go to Honolulu, you see the sun set twice on the day before you left, if that makes any sense. 
I think that's a perfect reason to uh, require that you need to go to Honolulu and have that experience. <laughs> All right, so help me understand. Um, I did not go through the military system. Um, how do you get in? How do you make that decision that you, you wanted to, instead of do the civilian, you know, the typical traditional track, you wanted to go to the military track? Maybe, uh, Pam, we could start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, for myself, I think joining the military is always very much a personal decision. Um, for me, I was the child of immigrants, and so my parents always emphasized upon me how lucky we were to live in a country that had so many opportunities and freedoms. Um, and so joining the military had always kind of been in the back of my mind. Um, but I finally committed um, when I was in residency. Um, and there's many different ways to uh, join the military, um, especially if you're a uh, physician. Um, and um, <clears throat> by joining the military as a, as a resident, I did something that was called the FAP program. Um, and it enabled uh, the Navy to uh, supplement my resident salary um, while, you know, uh, continuing my residency at a civilian institution. Uh, and then after I completed my residency, I did a year of active duty uh, as the ship surgeon on the USS Truman, uh, which is an aircraft carrier. Uh, <clears throat> after that was done, I then I am now... Um, a uh, pediatric surgery fellow again at a civilian program, but I'm actually still active duty. And so the military is actually uh, paying my salary right now. And then upon completion of my fellowship, I'll be returning to uh, full-time uh, Navy service as a uh, pediatric surgeon in the Navy at uh, one of the major Naval hospitals. And uh, Matt, your army, and is it different or the, is it the same kind of programs that all the different branches use? Yeah, so so I came through a, a different program called HPSB. Uh, that's Health Profession Scholarship Program. Uh, and actually, going back to my undergrad, my undergrad, I joined ROTC, um, which uh, that was mainly a financial decision. Obviously, they help pay for college, but I also have several family members who are in the Army. Um, and then that comes with an obligation. So after college, I did my four-year obligation. I was actually in, in a tank unit. I was an armor platoon leader, and, but had always wanted to go to medical school. And when you get into a medical school in the U.S., there are these military scholarships available called HPSP. Um, and all three services have them, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force. Uh, and you apply to them. And if you get accepted, they, they pay for your medical school. And then generally, you, you then are committed to going into a military residency uh, unless you get deferred for some reason, uh, and then you will owe your time back, which is usually uh, one year for one year of training. Uh, so, so I did the HPSB scholarship, uh, came out, went into a military residency program at Mattingari Medical Center, uh, and then when I completed that, I owed five years since my residency had been five years. And what was some of the decision points that you made to stay in? Uh, you said you've retired. You did the full 20 years as opposed to just getting out as soon as you've, you've paid back the time that you owe. Yeah, well, well, obviously, the big consideration is how much time you owe, how close that gets you to your retirement, because uh, you have to remember in the military system, it's a 20-year hard cutoff. So if you do 19 years, and get out, you get nothing in terms of pension and benefits, uh, although that's changing now to be more like civilian where you don't have to do your full 20 to get some benefits. But for me, it was, you know, you, you have to get to 20 years 
And so when your time is coming due, you kind of figure out, well, how many years do I have left to get to my 20 and how is it going so far? Uh, you know, am I happy with where I am or, you know, am I, am I really looking to do something different? And, and for me, I finished residency, did a fellowship, which bought me another two years that I owed. Uh, and then with my prior service time, when my commitment was coming up, I was at about 15 years. Uh, and then the decision was I, I liked what I was doing. Um, I had a great cl clinical practice, great partners doing good research. And so I just decided I would stay in and, and definitely finish out at least my 20. When you come out of residency, this is a question for Pam and for Ben, um, and you're fresh out, what is it like to be a surgeon? I think, uh, Pam, you were solo on the Truman and, and Ben, you were, uh, had some partners on the baton, but what special training did you have? I don't know if I would have felt ready to be a, a solo ship surgeon coming out after uh, residency. Um, well, <clears throat> I don't think that there was any, you know, particular um, specialty training, but I think that, you know, those of us who are in the military uh, who are know that we are going to be assigned to these billets um, have to approach our training with the mentality that you need to be prepared to handle things by yourself. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the one, the biggest thing that surprised me was about being in that situation was um, having to be comfortable dealing with non-general surgery issues. Uh, for example, like you said, I was by myself. I was the only surgeon. And while we did have other uh, primary care providers, they would often defer to me for a lot of other uh, surgical subspecialties. And so a lot of times I was having to deal with uh, ortho issues, urologic issues, uh, OBGYN issues, um, ENT, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, when I found out that I was going to be on a ship, uh, I it was toward the end of residency, and I and so I I tried to spend as much time as I could with with other surgical specialties that I that I had never encountered, like neurosurgery and orthopedics. And I it was hard in residency as a chief resident to get in the OR, you know, sort of after hours with other services. But um, I did a little bit, did a few burr holes and and did some X fixes and things like that. But uh, I also did before I deployed, uh, I did the the emergency war surgery course in San Antonio. And I know a lot of surgeons, there were a lot of Army and Air Force surgeons there as well. Uh, and a lot of us go there before we deploy. And it's a useful course. There's an, there's an asset component and an ATOM, like an abbreviated ATOM course. Uh, and, then, and then there's some cadaver work doing X-fixes and craniectomies, uh, which, is, which is useful because you know, I had never done a craniectomy. Uh, so it's at least useful to do it on a cadaver before I you know, may have been called to do it on my own on a ship. So... Those are, those are the, the ways I prepared, but, but in the end, you felt very, very unprepared to do something like a craniectomy on a ship all by yourself. So Ben, where did you do your residency again? And were you, were you FAP also? Is that how you came in? Yeah. So, so I, I had, like you guys, I'd felt like a, you know, a, a duty to serve for a long time. And when I was accepted to medical school, I thought that would be a useful way to serve and so I, I applied to HPSP like you did, Matt, and it was a, you know had application in and everything, and then ultimately decided not to do that program, and, and honestly regretted it during medical school. And so when I was in residency um, in Nashville, I as a junior resident uh, again uh, felt a duty to serve and and felt it was a it was a better time. I was in the program I wanted to be in and the specialty I wanted to be in, and. Um, 
and not to mention we had two kids and two more on the way. And so the, the money from the Navy helped a lot during residency. And, uh, I'm not from, a, I'm not from a military family myself. My wife, my wife's father served in Vietnam and her grandfather was a Marine in the Pacific in world war two. And so she was supportive and, and, and I, we really would never have, have commissioned in the military if it wasn't for her support. So, so both of you did civilian residencies, which is interesting. You did civilian residencies, and then you're getting thrown right into, you know, the military active duty and right. as a ship surgeon. I'm just interested about that, you know, how, how you found that adjustment. And, you know, I mean, I had five years, you know, in residency at, at an active duty post. The, to kind of yeah. get me yeah. into the culture it, of the military it was, and it was know, figure out what this rank is that and that picture is right. that. Right. So I'm just I wondering mean, what that transition was like for you both. It, it was it was <laughs> difficult to come from, you know, I was a <laughs> I was a I was a fully trained surgeon at that point and then I entered the military and I don't I don't know I, I, the first time I drove we, we packed up all our stuff in Nashville and drove to Norfolk, Virginia, to Little Creek, Virginia. And we had a, I drove a 20-foot U-Haul on the base, and I, I, had, a, I had a CAT card, luckily. Uh, it's about the only thing I had, which is our, a common access card. It's a card you, that everybody has in the military to, to, to get on base, to use a computer, to buy stuff at wherever. And I handed the guard the, my CAT card, and he, he saluted. I didn't know if I was going to be able to get on base or not. And he saluted me, and, and I drove right in, and it was the most bizarre experience. I'd, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, so, but it, it, was, it was difficult to transition to the military. Um, but, uh, you know, we had to go, I had to go to officer development school and that was for a month right after that. And, uh, uh, it was like, you know, which is like boot camp for officers. And it was, it, the, the transition to the military was harder, uh, for us, for my family than transition to ship life. Shipboard life is, is okay. Um, it's, uh, there's not that much to do on the ship, but uh, that's a, that's another story. We can talk about that later. But but military life was was a little bit difficult to transition to. But overall, it's been good. It was um, in the long run, you 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 adjust to it well. Yeah. Similarly, I uh, <laughs> I certainly um, it's a it's a different culture, and it's um, it's uh, there's a lot of like little things you learn about the military um, that uh, you know sometimes you find out through. Um, through your um, uh, your boot camp, or you otherwise find out um, uh, when your chief tells you that you made a mistake. <laughs> Everyone on my ship was very good natured about it, and um, you know, I, I uh, they were very supportive of me. So um, that part, um, you know, we were I was able to overcome. Um, you know, the I think the unanticipated thing was how there's always this extra level of complexity when trying to do simple things. <laughs> Um, ben, you mentioned ship life, and I'd like to talk about uh, the three of you, what your experiences were on the ship or on land. Um, a little background, my husband was attached to the Bataan during the 2011-2012 deployment, and in getting ready for this trauma cast, I asked him what the medical support was like on that ship, and he said he really didn't know, uh, but what he did feel like is that he had this comfort that anything that happened, there was an air wing on board and there were trauma surgeons, and so he felt the whole deployment that if something had happened that you or your you know your counterpart would have been able to stabilize the patients until they could get them to shore. And I'm I'm curious if you could describe for the listeners a bit you know what exactly what kind of ship the Bataan is and its capabilities, and then if you felt the same way the sailors did that you were prepared and could stabilize these patients. Yeah, I, I don't know. There was, there was definitely not always a trauma surgeon on board. Just me for the most part. Just a, just a general surgeon. There was a trauma surgeon for a, a brief period of time, um, but so the, the 
the USS Bataan is a WASP class amphibious assault ship. And uh, they are designed to carry a Marine expeditionary unit. So they're designed to carry Marines all over the world and, and their aircraft as well. So it's, it looks like an aircraft carrier, just a little bit smaller. And the, they're actually the, the primary casualty receiving ship for the Navy as well. And they have, they have better medical capabilities than the aircraft carriers do because their mission is different. Their mission is to deliver Marines for amphibious assault and then, you know, pick up the casualties as well. So we, on, on board the Bataan, the ship's company, there's a senior medical officer and then there's a, um, there's a, a general medical officer as well. But the ship is always augmented while it's underway with the fleet surgical team. And that, that's what I was on. And, and the FST is an 18-member team as a general surgeon, CRNA, family doc, psychiatrist, nurse, OR nurse. Um, uh, and then there's corpsmen as well, um, like a respiratory tech and lab tech and things like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a good team. And we, we augment the ship. And so there's always a surgeon on board and a CRNA and an OR nurse um, and surge techs. And, and while we were deployed, we were occasionally augmented even further with other surgical teams, the an ERSS, which is a team that was sort of hanging around the Fifth Fleet area around the Arabian Peninsula, and then another surgical team. Um, and, and sometimes those surgeons had, had extra training. At one point, we had a surgeon with us who was both, had both had done a trauma fellowship and a vascular fellowship. So uh, it was great, great to have to have some help out there as well. Um, but we have on the those uh, LHD WASP class LHDs have six operating rooms and uh, they have a 16 bed ICU and a 45 bed medical ward but the ship um, in responding to a huge huge casualty can actually convert many of of the of the birthing into beds and so it can it can convert itself into hundreds of, of overflow casualty beds if need be <clears throat> and then we have a we have, we have a blood bank as well we have uh, 400 units, I think, of, of frozen red blood cells, and then 50 units of FFP, which is not a balanced ratio, but that's another that's another topic. Uh, we don't have an apheresis machine or platelets, and so we rely heavily uh, in a mass casualty situation on a, on a walking blood bank, which uh, is the is the sailors essentially, and some of the Marines on board are pre-screened to to donate blood, and we have. We have a list of names with their blood types, and so if we need a certain blood type, we just call out uh, the individual's name over the 1MC system, and they come down to the medical spaces, and we can draw blood from them. And if that's a very well-prepared um, system, and it, did you ever have to employ it, or have you been involved in situations where you had to actually, you know, use the walking blood bank or get into you know, multiple ORs and ICU beds? Yeah, we we did. We had a um, so the. In the, in the last 15 years of, of mostly terrestrial combat, the, there hasn't been uh, much trauma done on ships. We did have a helicopter crash nearby, and so we took six casualties at the same time. Um, and we, you know, we we had three operating rooms running at one point with three different surgeons, and activated the walking blood bank. And we had we had we had drilled the walking blood bank, you know, before that while we were deployed and. To the point where we would, you know, we would we'd exercise it to completion. So we would draw a unit of blood from somebody and then and then auto transfuse the unit back to that person. So we were ready for this, and we, you know, we drew fifty some units of blood and transfused forty units of blood, whole, whole blood, during during that event, which is which is a lot. The most actually the most whole blood trans that I that I know of transfused aboard an American warship since Vietnam. Um, so we so it was good that we had trained. We were we were ready to do that. Um, 
But at the same time, even those six casualties with the limited resources on board a ship, we were quickly overwhelmed and were, were running out of things more quickly than we, than, than we thought. We're, um, and it's difficult at sea to, re to replenish uh, your resources. And so consumables go quickly and um, people get tired quickly. And, and it's, it's, uh, we're able to handle those, you know, those casualties, but it, you could see how you would, you would need more resources and more people available if you were to sustain something like that uh, for, for several days or weeks on end. Sure, sure. That sounds um, intense. <clears throat> Matt, when you're on the ground, what if you could ex explain to everyone, what, what is it like for you? Are you in uh, like actual hospital buildings? Are you on these like uh, mobile like pup tent hospitals? And, and, and what is your resource chain and supply like when you're out there? <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that's a big question. So first thing is it's it's highly setting and context specific. Um, but I'll just say in general, when, when we deploy and, and I'll speak for the army, the army medical footprint in a combat zone, we, we kind of, we have our traditional, traditional medical units and those generally come in, in two sizes, uh, the small mobile forward at, at surgical team or an FST. And that's traditionally been about 20 people. Um, you, they have their own tents that they set up. There's an OR tent an ER tent and then a ward slash ICU tent. And, and generally your, your mission or your capability is supposed to be, you can run two ORs continuously for 48 hours until you need to be resupplied. Uh, and then the larger element, which, uh, developed from the old mash is called the cash or combat sport hospital. And that can range anywhere from one to about 300 people. Um, it's obviously more robust. You usually have a CAT scanner. You can, you have more ORs, you have more specialties. Uh, and, you know, usually you have anywhere on the order of 40 to 70 beds, which can be expanded. Uh, and, and, and those are our two traditional size units. Uh, as we got busier and busier, we started splitting those units. So in Afghanistan, most of the forward surgical teams were actually split. So that 20 person team is split 10 and 10 to cover two locations hmm. and, wow. and the combat sport hospitals would be split uh, to cover two or sometimes even three locations. Uh, and now the latest development is there's even smaller teams called austere surgical teams. There's a bunch of different names for them uh, and they can be as small as four to five people on a team. And obviously you're talking about a pretty limited and focused resource. Uh, you know, you can operate and stabilize, you know, one or two people at a time. Uh, but that's a much more limited resource. Sure, it's almost like a uh, assembly line, right? The small groups way out front, take the first casualty, stabilize, move it to the bigger and the bigger until you get to a proper hospital. Is that a good way of thinking of it? Yeah, yeah. And you're operating in the continuum <clears throat> of care. So, you know, from point of injury to, we, we call it roles, roll one, roll two, back to roll five, which is in the U.S. Uh, and, and that works great for you know, U.S. service members or NATO coalition forces. Um, but, you know, throughout these wars, I have never deployed to a unit where that was the majority of people were taken care of. At every time I've deployed, the majority of people were local nationals, so Iraqi, Afghani, military, police, civilians, etc. Uh, and there, you know, you may not be able to evacuate them to the next level because that chain is only for U.S. and NATO. So then you got to kind of figure out where to get those people next. Uh, but for in terms of U.S. And, and NATO coalition injured patients, yeah, that you're operating in that continuum of care, which is nice because you always have the, you know, that next level backing you up. 
When when I do sign out with my partners and I've got a complicated trauma patient, if I don't tell them critical information or I forget something, I could just call them in an hour. Or if they want have a clarifying question, they just call me. How do how do you guys do sign out? I mean, you're doing sign out and these, these patients are actually leaving your region and moving on sometimes to different countries and maybe you're back out in the field or not available. How how do you make sure that all the proper information gets transferred? Yeah. So Pam, what so, how, how about in the ship setting? Well, um, you know, oftentimes uh Hopefully, we were in a right position where we could make a phone call to the nearest MTF that we were intending to um, transfer a patient and get a hold of somebody to physically talk to them. Um, and, um, you know, that was the best case scenario. And a lot of other times, it's just, um, you know, having good documentation, giving good sign out to the um, corpsman who's escorting the um the patient and then uh, leaving our contact information for them to contact us if they had any questions or concerns we did the same thing we would when we we transferred those patients to germany and we called the the, the surgeon on call in, in germany we were able to, to make a phone call and talk to them directly which is nice and then we transferred all their all their documents you know all the documents operative notes and you know progress notes and all the stuff we could uh, with the patient as well, hoping for the best. And I'm sure that there was, you know, with a complex trauma patient, there's there's a lot that's lost in, you know, in, there's a lot that's lost even in a, in a handout. If you're standing at the at the patient's bedside sometimes, it, and there's a lot more that can be lost when the, the patient has to, has to fly, you know, from a ship to Germany. So, so would easy. you would you always have reliable communication where you could reach we, Germany or the U.S.? We, I cannot think of a time when we, when we did not. I mean, even the the phone service was not great out there, and you don't have any. There's no cell. There's no cell service. There's no Wi-Fi on a ship, in case you were wondering. And <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it. But but even I'm thinking like even in the middle of the Atlantic, it was you're able to still call using the ship's phone. You can you can still call off if you need to. Yeah. So, so as far as, uh, you know, in, in, in a combat zone or the ground experience, um, the, the one advantage of being at war for 15 plus years is, you know, the theater matured. So, yeah. so on my last deployment, I could Skype with my family, had very good internet. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty right. Reliable, Gosh, pretty, Skype? Pr- we could pretty, not do that. Wow. <laughs> pretty reliable phone service, but Incredible. That was again. That that was after being there for 15 years, right? On yeah. On my first couple deployments, um, you know, we would be in a location, and we we really could not talk to anybody. We had we had very limited phone that almost never worked. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we could raise somebody on the radio. We had an internet that was like 1970 dial-up. You know, where it would take five <laughs> minutes to load yeah. one page. So, so, communi- so communication environment is a challenge. And, and the thing is, we're kind of used to how it is now, not realizing if we go into another conflict in a different part, we're going to be back to square one with mm-hmm. the lousy communication. So, mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll tell you one, one quick story is we were in Tikrit and all our patients got evacuated to the next level that was Balad, a big air base. And, and we just could not communicate with them. And we had tried emailing them patient records and we would fill out this form that was supposed to go to the patient would get lost. And then they would complain back to us. We're not getting any information. And so finally we came up with this whole chart packet that we were going to fill out. And we had a printer 
and we had a patient and we wrote out the op reports and the discharge summary and printed everything out and taped it all together in a nice file folder and handed it to the medics when they came to pick him up on the helicopter. And then we, we were watching as they brought the patient out to the helicopter and we were all patting each other on the back saying there's no way those guys can complain about this one. And as they're rolling them up to the helicopter, the folder gets sucked off of the patient up into the rotors <laughs> and literally comes showering down over us in about a thousand pieces of confetti. And so, so that's my, that's my great analogy of communication on the battlefield. Um, actually one, one of the best, most reliable things is just writing right on the patient, mm -hmm. like ta yeah. taking, taking a marker, writing the key information on the patient, like, especially like an open abdomen, a big iaban sheet over the abdomen. And then you write right on that, you know, what mm -hmm. operation you did, how much blood they got, how much fluid. And, and when I would get somebody like that from, you know, a, a level ahead of me, that would be probably some of the best communication I would receive. I would know everything that happened right there. So let's talk about what life is like once you're not on deployment, you're stateside. Most military hospitals aren't level one trauma centers, but when you're getting deployment ready, you're getting ready for level one trauma. So how do you keep up your skills uh, when you're at home and then even enhance your skills or get, or get better at, at surgery? That's a great question. And I think that, that all military surgeons and military treatment facilities, small military hospitals are, are struggling with how to answer that question. And, and I can tell you my experience. So uh, in, in Portsmouth, when I was at the Naval Hospital in Portsmouth, we don't do any trauma there. Um, we do some big, you know, some big cases, but, but no trauma. Um, but here I'm on in Guam, it's a little different situation. This is one of the few military, military hospitals that actually sees trauma. Um, just the other night we had the stabbing and so we did an X-lap and a splenectomy and a, you know, bowel resection and diaphragm repair. So we do see, we see trauma here, but this is an unusual place. And, and in my practice here on Guam, we do, it's, it's like a typical, it's like rural, it's a rural surgery practice, really. Um, do a lot of endoscopy, we do some trauma, we do colorectal, breast, hernia, endocrine, um, really anything that you feel comfortable dealing with, you know, you can, you can do here. Um, and, but there are some limitations. There's no ERCP on this Island. And so we do to show the day I had to do another common duct exploration because, uh, there's, there's no ERCP available. Um, so there are, there are certain, certainly limitations to being here, but I think it's a, it's a good place to be as far as keeping my skills up. I know a lot of other military surgeons, uh, struggle uh, even even maintaining the the numbers required by the DHA, you know, to maintain competency to deploy downrange. So uh, it it sort of depends on the individual and 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 where they're at as to how ready they are. I think to to make their next deployment. Pam, how about you? I was curious because you've done uh, general surgery, of course, but you're a pediatric surgical fellow, and I don't imagine you do a lot of pediatric surgery when you're deployed on a ship. How are you going to keep your skills up in between deployments? You know, I think that um, uh, even though I'm a training to be a pediatric surgeon, you know, still general surgery board certified. And um, one of the things about pediatric surgery is that generally um, all the pediatric surgeons cover trauma. And so they have to be very comfortable dealing with trauma, even in their mm -hmm. own institutions. Um, <clears throat> but it is a, a good point that Ben brings up. So and I think that enhances the importance of um, military civilian partnerships. And so you know, in many places, um, especially with regards to subspecialty care, a lot of military surgeons are, are also um, not just working at their primary MTF, their, the um, 
at the military hospitals, but also um, working with uh, civilian hospitals as well and uh, being a full-time um, faculty member or um, and take call at those institutions to also uh, maintain their skills and, uh, and build relationships between the military and um, these institutions. Matt, you've been around for a bit longer than uh, Ben and Pam. What changes have you seen <laughs> over the? I try to say that politely. What changes? Yeah, the, the colonel's been around. He's been around for a long time. <laughs> he knows a lot more than we do. But what have you? What changes have you seen, or what things is the military or the government trying to institute to uh, to help improve this? Yeah. So this is this is the hot topic now. Is how do we maintain readiness? Um, how do we balance our go to war mission with our, you know, home mission to take care of service members, their families, retirees, et cetera. Um, and, and nobody has a great answer to that just yet. Uh, there, there's a lot of talk about us getting out of the beneficiary care mission, you know, and letting the civilian uh, system handle that and kind of cutting down the military force to really just a, a, an operational force that focuses on, you know, deployment and combat trauma. And then how do we maintain surgeons who are ready to deploy? Uh, we're, I think the big thing now is we're working on more military civilian partnerships where our surgeons can go to busy level one trauma centers, uh, can, you know, get comfortable with trauma care, get comfortable with major operations. And, uh, and just last week, there was a, you know, an act that's been working its way through Congress for just, I think, the past two years uh, called the Mission Zero Act. And that was finally passed and signed into law. And that, that provides the funding for these programs to set up more of these uh, teams that are embedded at civilian level one trauma centers. Uh, but, but the other part of that is, what are our requirements to say, okay, you're ready to deploy as a battlefield surgeon? Because right now, there really aren't many. Uh, you know, there's no requirement that, you know, they cover so many, do so many trauma calls. There's no requirement for case numbers. You know, there's minimal requirements like, you know, they have to have ATLS. Uh, and so that's the other parts that's being developed is, and it's going to include, it's going to include case numbers. It's going to include, you know, training courses. So everyone will have to be Adam asset, uh, ATLS. Uh, it'll probably include, you know, a certain number of trauma calls uh, and maybe even trauma CMEs. Uh, and, and I think that's that's really, you know, the way we need to head because because as it has been in the past, you know, you could be a breast surgeon doing nothing but breast mm -hmm. for five years. And then suddenly you get, you know, your number comes up and you're deploying to a combat zone. And as long as you have your ATLS card, you were considered good to go. Let's talk about East for a moment. Um, and Matt, I, I'm going to come back to you on this. You have been extremely active in East, and you've got a full military career. How did you balance the time between volunteering for East and and, uh, and what that involves, as well as maybe the East meetings in January and you're leading a committee, but you're deployed? How did that balance out? Yeah, so so one, East is an organization that, you know, no matter what makes that work. I mean, they they have been incredibly supportive, like, like I think most of our organizations have been you know double ast western trauma east uh, you name it but but east particularly i mean they have a military committee you know they they lowered registration and membership dues um and and they really like to get military people involved in all their committees uh so so that was one it's an organization that i think is just really attuned 
to supporting the military. Uh, and then the other, the other thing is, you know, you, as an individual, if you're a military surgeon, you, you just kind of need to make a decision of, you know, am I going to, am I going to kind of focus and stay, you know, in the military arena or am I interested in, you know, the civilian academic side? And I think if you want to be a real academic surgeon, you have to become a presence on the civilian academic side. Uh, one of the nice things, though, is, you know, we, we, we work in a system where it's not necessarily eat what you kill, right? So, so if I, you know, have to go to a meeting and miss a couple clinics, well, you know, my, my partners cover the clinics and, and, you know, it doesn't hurt my, my RVUs or my salary, et cetera. So in some ways, we're, we actually, I think, have more, more flexibility in adjusting our schedule and, and doing some things like participating in civilian organizations versus some of our civilian colleagues who, you know, if, if they miss a day of clinic or OR, that, that's hurting them financially, hurting their RVUs, et cetera. And I don't, I don't know what, uh, what Pam and Ben think, but uh, that's been my experience. Pam, you had mentioned that you um, won the call to arm scholarship that helped fund your uh, meeting travels and experience there. Uh, how long have you been with East? I've been to um, East meetings when I was a resident, you know, having had an interest in um, in trauma and knowing that, uh, you know, as a pediatric surgeon, you have to be very comfortable with trauma, um, but particularly as a uh, military surgeon. Um, and so prior to deployment, I actually uh, downloaded a good amount of the uh, East um, uh, practice management guidelines and made sure oh, that- Oh, so you're going to say TraumaCast. <laughs> oh, I know. Actually, Carrie, I, seriously, I actually downloaded TraumaCast as well and I because I had all these uh, surgical <laughs> podcasts uh, downloaded um, because uh, Ben had alluded to the sh on the ship, the Wi-Fi is not, or there is no Wi-Fi and the internet is- It's very slow. Yeah, it's pretty, um, very marginal. Like, um, it's kind of like Matt was saying, or it'll take five minutes to sometimes load up a page. Uh, but anyway, I had both uh, the practice management guidelines and the trauma cast downloaded uh, prior to my deployment. And then when I returned, I found out that um, East had a uh, scholarship available to, for uh, military, um, um, military um, residents and fellows. And um, I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's actually called the uh, call to arms, um, call to military, excuse me, call to military service scholarship. Um, and uh, it's awarded uh, every year to um, one member from each branch of service and uh, provides um, uh, funds for uh, meeting registration, travel, and lodging. And I had the opportunity to go uh, this past year. And again, like I said, it was a very uh, tremendous experience. Um, there is a very robust uh, East military uh, committee there. And I found there was a great group of people that I had met um, <clears throat> from the military. And so I would encourage any, any person interested to apply. Ben, what has your experience been uh, involved with the East? So I went to an East meeting as a as a chief resident. I presented a uh, presented a paper there, and it was it was useful to go. Actually, this was when I was a this was when I was a chief resident. I had you know, commission, but I was not on active duty yet. And so, but it was useful to go to the East meeting then as a civilian. Well, as, I guess I, I was. I mean, I still felt like I was a civilian, even though I had commissioned because I hadn't I didn't even have a unit. Didn't even know how to put on a uniform yet at that point. But there is a there there are some sessions there for military surgeons, and so this is my honestly the first time I met any other military surgeons was at this East meeting, um, which was useful because I had you know I had I had no idea what I was getting into, with sort of with sort of things to to look out for, and and um, I got some great tips from 
from some of the other trauma, you know, military trauma surgeons who were at the meeting uh, about about things, you know, like for example, like to apply to be an assistant professor at USIS, which is the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. Um, you can be, you know, any military surgeon can be an assistant professor there, and so it was. It was nice to be able to. To um, it's this. The group still felt kind of unfamiliar because they were all in the military and had uniforms on, and I was in my civilian camouflage. And but it was it was useful to to finally meet some other military surgeons. And had I not been to that East meeting, I, I mean, I I would have never. I wouldn't have met military surgeons until until much later. Sure, and I'm going to put in a plug here for the East TraumaCast, uh, since Pam had mentioned downloading it. Some of my absolute favorite TraumaCasts are in our category of mili just military. If you go online to the uh, education and then click on TraumaCast, you'll see that there's podcasts currently available, um, and one of the categories is military. And we published uh, the case records, and so it's the case records of the joint trauma systems. And at each of the major meetings, the military will present very interesting, very complex cases, and it's just it's just fascinating. I love it. We have some that are critical care. We have some that are surgery. We have some that are pure trauma. Um, so if you haven't touched base with um, those trauma casts, I'd highly recommend going back. The most recent one we did was critical care, and it's uh, the East Trauma Cast number 118. Uh, and if you get into it, then you can just go back through all of them. These are probably the ones that I've listened to multiple times, um, just because they're so uh, such interesting cases. So we're just uh, about wrapping up on time. I just want to give each of you an opportunity. Uh, we can start with uh, you, Pam. Was there anything that we hadn't spoken of yet about the military and, and your experience as a, a uh, excuse me, as a ship surgeon there? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess I would say that uh, it was when I was uh, deployed on the ship. It was it's very difficult, and um, you know, I obviously miss my family quite a bit. And but then, to be honest, looking back on it, I can only look back upon it fondly. Uh, the camaraderie that I experienced uh, there was actually truly phenomenal. Um, and uh, we developed some very close bonds with all the other uh, medical staff there. I mean, being in that situation, you really do have a sense of like, you're in this together. And it doesn't matter like what kind of different um, backgrounds you had. Uh, everyone was supporting everyone whenever there was something serious that was happening. Um, and the other um, great thing that I uh, gleaned from this experience was the opportunity to work with Corman and to, um, uh, to teach them and help them uh, advance their careers as well. And that was uh, what I found to be a very uh, tremendously rewarding experience. Yeah, I think you once told us about learning tracheostomies with toilet paper rolls, yeah? Oh yeah, so uh, you make do with what you have on the ship. And so uh, I saved a bunch of toilet paper rolls and made them into uh, little little trachs so that the Corbin could learn how to do uh, tracheostomies and then uh, I also made a fake chest from a box and uh, a bunch of tongue depressors taped together. So uh, we do what we got to do. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Ben, did you have anything else to add? And, uh, you know, the the military life is different than civilian life, but over, and there are there are some negatives that that accompany that accompany it. But overall, the positives uh, outweigh those negatives. I think. And if, and if I had to do it over again, I would choose to commission as a naval officer every time. And the, you know, we do things that nobody else gets to do or see, you know, um, living on a ship, very few people have that opportunity and, you know, flying helicopters and into the world and, and, uh, and, and, you know, the, you have a duty to serve your country and duty is inconvenient, but, um, but overall it's been a good experience for me. And I think for my family, I'm proud to have served in a, in the United States Navy.
Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. It sounds awful having your spouse deploy, but being on the home side of it, it, it really is a good positive experience uh, for our family, certainly, even though uh, we have to deal with deployments. As you said, it's, it's inconvenient, but the, the benefits, I think, certainly outweigh some of the, uh, the negatives mm -hmm. we've experienced, at least. And uh, Matt, how about you? Any uh, final thoughts as we uh, close up this TraumaCast? Uh, well, well, I'll just agree with all that was just said. I mean, you know, I'm, I've just retired from the military and, you know, when I, thank you. When I, right. when I look, when I look back at it, there's a lot of things I don't miss. Uh, you know, a lot of mandatory online training and, you know, showing up, <laughs> showing up to do physical fitness tests at five mm -hmm. in the morning. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but the, the people you work with and, and especially the deployment experiences, uh, I mean, have, have just been incredible. That's, like if I if I kind of get nostalgic for anything, uh, I've noticed it's for the deployment, the deployments and just just deploying with a group of people where, I mean, everybody has the same focus. Uh, you know, when was the last time you had that at your hospital? Right? Everybody is on the same page and understands the mission mm -hmm. and they're working towards one thing. It's uh, it, it's it's an incredible experience. And then and then the other the other thing I get asked a lot, I think, for any junior military surgeons who are listening, I get asked a lot about, well, you know, how, how can I get involved in civilian organizations? You know, how can I do this? How can I become a committee chair? And it's a very complicated answer. The answer is show up. <laughs> right? Just, just, just show up and be there. And your military experience and position is going to make you unique, different from most people. And, you know, and, and that's how I've gotten anywhere in civilian organizations is they're they're doing something and they say, oh, hey, we should we should have a military person on this. And then it's just, oh, well, who do we know that's a military person that, that you know, that shows up? Oh, oh, Matt, let's put them on that. You know, it's it's certainly not for any inherent, you know, brilliance or skills on, on my part. It's, you know, you're if you're the military person who shows up and and is enthusiastic and wants to do things and, and you know, does them then, you know, that'll take you as far as you want to go. So, so I just say a, a lot of opportunities out there for military surgeons. And, and I think it's critical that we continue being enmeshed in all the civilian organizations and efforts because, you know, both systems have to work together. Mm -hmm. Very well put. Thank you, everybody, for our 18 time zone difference of doing this comic <laughs> uh, Remember that you can find us on uh, Twitter at East underscore uh, TraumaCast uh, or online at East.org. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank All you. right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks. Thanks. You too. Bye. Have a good day. Or morning. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.